0: And various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message.
1: My task here today this is part one of a message concerning Sukkot. Uh, God willing, this evening will be part two. And my challenge before you today is to try to take us back nearly 2,000 years. Right now, we have our humble humble sukkot, our humble sukkahs outside. Some of us have built some at our house. Uh, If you have drove past the north part of the building, you can see the sukkah that right now will be decorated by your children. That's what their project is today, to decorate the sukkah. So be sure if you are able to attend tonight and you see the decorations there, be sure to thank the children because they, with the supervision of their instructors, will be decorating our sukkah. Sukkah is a Hebrew word, has the idea of a hut, a shack, a, a tabernacle, a tent, although tent is a different word in Hebrew. That's the word ohel, but it's, it's like that. It's a temporary dwelling place. And what we're doing here this evening and, and this day Is not new it's actually quite ancient as I mentioned it goes back well beyond the first century well beyond 2000 years ago all the way back to the time of Moshe Moses and the giving of the Torah and as we studied on Tuesday night here in our Bible study uh, the Feast of Tabernacles as it's commonly called was not Moses idea he didn't make it up. <laughs> I'm shaking my head. He didn't make it up. It wasn't his idea. It was actually God's idea and has many meanings to it. And over the, next, the course of the next week, as we're able to partake of various uh, celebrations, including here and also in homes like the, the Martin home and others, we, we should recognize and try to grasp what we can, the deeper meaning of this. And I'm thoroughly convinced that all the holy days point to Yeshua the Messiah. They all do. Uh, Directly, indirectly, sideways, backwards, no matter how you do it, they all point to Yeshua as Mashiach, as the Messiah, as Ha'adon, the Lord. Now, in the first century, at the time of Yeshua and the apostle, there was one great difference from what we have now. Well, there were other differences. They didn't have cars and electricity and all that, obviously. But the Jerusalem of the first century, there was a huge Beit HaMikdash, a huge temple there. And it wasn't just a temple that had been slapped together and erected. This was an ornate and beautiful temple. We're going to talk some about that. And as the uh, Jewish people came and gathered from all over the world, literally the known world, they would come on Sukkot. Why did they come on Sukkot? Because it was one of the three pilgrimage feasts, as they're called, the Shlosh Regalim, one of the three pilgrimage feasts. The first one being Passover, the second one being Shavuot, or, or Pentecost, the third one being Sukkot. And they came from all over. Can you imagine? I just think about it. Jerusalem right now is a very uh, international city. The time that I lived there, I loved it. It was so international. But back then, during the, the holy days, such as Sukkot, it was really international. People came with their dress. They came with different languages. They came, etc. probably schlepping their own little lunch boxes, as we might say today, with their own special foods from their own country. And this celebration of Sukkot in the the first century at the time of the temple, it was literally, and I mean literally underlined, it was a 24-hour, seven-day celebration with an eighth day that Torah prescribes. This is at the temple, the Beit HaMikdas in Jerusalem. And not only was it a 24-hour, seven-day celebration, that means that something was going on all the time. Sometimes it was more grandiose and elaborate. Other times it was more laid back. But it was, it was literally a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week celebration connected back to the Beit HaMikdaos, temple. And not only that, but all 24 groupings, all 24 sections of the Kohanim, the Levitical priesthood, were involved during this week. So there, there wasn't a group uh, within the Levitical priesthood. that were divided into sections. They're, historically, there were 24 different sections. You know whose father was involved with that? John the Baptist's father was one of those. And they were involved with the commemorations, with the sacrifices that took place. It was a, although it's supposed to be a rest time, and all the rest times that are mentioned in the Torah, there was work going on in in all those rest times. On the Sabbath, on Sukkot, Levitical Kohanim, none of them had the day off. None of them had that week off. They were all involved somehow in a rotation basis. So, and although at that time the first century, and there's much historical writing in Josephus and Philo and others, although at that time there was this great celebration, and literally coming from all directions were throngs of people coming up from Egypt and coming down from the north from, from what's modern day Lebanon and Syria to the to the east, etc. Although there were throngs of people going, throngs of Jewish people. There was one man who was unlike them all. (laughs) This one person was unlike all that went there. Sure, he was a Jew. He was Jewish. Of the house of David. Born in Bethlehem. But this one, Yeshua, commonly called Jesus, this one did something very unique on one of his Sukkots that he attended. It tells us in John chapter 7, verse 10. But after Yeshua's brothers had gone up to Sukkot, to Tabernacles, so his brothers, if you read it, we don't have time to go through all of it. I encourage you to read John 7, John 8, and John 9 if you have time. But his brothers say to Yeshua, let's go up, let's go up. And he says, no, no, I'm not going up now. But after his brothers had gone up to Sukkot, Yeshua too went up. So he went up a little bit later. There, And it says he he went up, not publicly, but in secret. Now, perhaps Yeshua's solitary Sukkot journey that's described in John 7, again, I encourage you to read that, especially during this week of Sukkot. Perhaps this solitary Sukkot journey that we read in John 7 was very different when you think about it. Very different from what would happen not too long afterwards. What we commonly call the, the triumphal entry, the triumphant entry to Jerusalem, what Christians celebrate as Palm Sunday. But this Sukkot was different. This when he went on Sukkot, this was different than when he went at Passover, what's commonly called Palm Sunday, when people were laying down palms in front of him and etc. But this he goes up on Sukkot. Solitary by himself and I I was thinking I wonder how many interactions he had with people and how many interactions he had there what did he say to them as he went up solitary first of all it shows bravery he went by himself it also shows really 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 being led of the Holy Spirit which is the goal for every believer to be led of the Spirit so Yeshua's journey that's depicted in John chapter 7 during this one Sukkot, was, it was done quietly. Just think of the contrast when you read the Besorot, the Gospels, that basically everywhere where Yeshua went, there were throngs of people around him. One Gospel says that there were so many people that people could barely move. There was a throng of people. But this Sukkot, the John 7 Sukkot, It was by himself. It was solitary. It says it was done quietly. It was resolutely. It was not ostentatiously done. And he journeyed to Jerusalem for that Sukkot and what we might call compared to especially the throngs that went around him in the Galilee in relative secrecy. Not with the throngs. Not with the throngs that usually followed him. And that's an important key here as we think about what takes place But that is a good question. What did take place at Sukkot in the first century temple era? What did take place? As I said, we know that Jewish people came from all over the world at Tabernacles, Sukkot. And they came there, why? Because I've already mentioned it was one of the three great pilgrimage feasts. And of course, the, the pilgrims, as we might call them, those that went on a pilgrimage for the Shlosh Regalim, the three incumbent feasts that all males, that didn't exclude the females, but all males, their families included, could go up, should go up to Jerusalem at that time. And when they got up to Jerusalem, they faithfully presented their offerings to the Lord, Along with their sacrifices, and this is where the priesthood comes in. Along with their sacrifices, and for Sukkot, Sukkot is an ingathering feast. It's a feast of harvest. So they came and they presented at the temple their very best, their first, their best fruit. They didn't bring the fruit that had worms in it, (laughs) that was old, that had spots and blemishes and, and, and bruises. They didn't bring that. If they had, you know what would have happened? You know what the priest would have said? No. Give the best to the Lord. And I think that's still a teaching for us to give him our first fruit offerings. Give him the best that we can, not the worst. He's not the God of our leftovers. He's the God of first fruits. That's who he is. But they came, they recorded incidents and recorded descriptions of thousands of Jewish people heading to Jerusalem for the three feasts. For Sukkot, they describe, and also for Shavuot, but a different type of uh, harvest, they describe Sukkot of people with huge baskets of fruit carrying it, carrying it up to the temple and getting it and then presenting it down at the temple before the Kohanim. You can see why they needed all 24 regimens of the, the priesthood to be involved with this. It was a major task. Did everybody show up on time? <laughs> No, some straggled in, (laughs) and in this case, Yeshua showed up even a little bit later by divine purpose, important purpose that John 7 lays out very well in John 8, but there were other events that took place in Jerusalem at the temple, and they were fascinating. That's really the topic here today and this evening in part two of this message. There were other events that took place that we could say, even by modern terms, were great spectacles. Great spectacles. And they had great spiritual meaning for the people as they went up with and presented their best to the Lord, and sacrifices took place. The sacrifices are listed in the book of Numbers. We studied them on Tuesday, starting with a great amount and lessening down to a lesser amount. All the major sacrifices equaling 70, which represented the nations, according to rabbinical thinking. But at the temple in the first century, the very temple that Yeshua went up to in Jerusalem, the Betamiktash, at that time, there were two major, ex- what we call extra biblical events, and they were spectacular events, that took place right there in the environs of the temple. Those two were the lights ceremony, the ceremony of lights. And the second one, which we'll speak about this evening, was fascinating. It's the, the water libation ceremony. We'll explain that more this evening. Today, I want to speak about the, fe- the lights ceremony, or the festival of lights, or the ceremony of lights. Now, as we think about these two, historians believe that it was at the light ceremony, the light ceremony that this was the setting of Yeshua's words in John chapter 8, verse 12. And think about it, it makes a lot of sense. In Yohanan, John chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Yeshua spoke to them again, and what does he say to them? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light which gives life. And then also in John chapter 9, again, historians wonder, biblical historians wonder exactly how all this came together, how this all splices together. How does this connect with what was taking place in the temple when Yeshua went up in John 7? In John chapter 9, verse 5, Yeshua said that the occasion of the healing of the man born blind, he says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world now that kind of statement when you consider what was going on in the temple is quite profound so messiah yeshua's proclamation as the light of the world corresponds well with the light ceremony in jerusalem that took place during the feast of tabernacles so here's what happened. At least a thumbnail sketch of what happened is much more complex than this, and much more dramatic than this. But let me give you a thumbnail sketch of what we know took place during the light ceremony at the Beit Hamikdash, the Temple in Jerusalem. So during Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a seven-day feast plus one additional day, Shmini Atzeret. During Sukkot, the temple was illuminated, historians say, including people like Josephus, they say that the temple was illuminated by large golden menorot or menorahs, candelabras, candlesticks. Kind of something like this over here to my right. But they were large, and when I say large, I mean large. Think about this. Historically, they believe that the height Of these menorot that illuminated the temple area was 75 feet high. Yes, (laughs) approximately seven stories high. Well, there's a problem right away. How do you light a seven-story high candle? Some of us have trouble lighting a regular candle. If you wonder how seven stories, think of a seven-story building and and a, and a menorah, a golden one, and I don't mean an artificial one, a golden menorah, golden menorah, seven stories high. And there are several historical references to this height. Had to be lit. So how did they do it? Those menorot were lit by brave men. <laughs> Brave and and the text, the historical text says brave young men. <laughs> it should say brave young men that knew how to climb. That's what it should say. <laughs> and they would climb exceedingly tall ladders. This is only once a year, by the way. They would climb exceedingly tall ladders, and they hoped probably and prayed there wasn't a lot of wind during that day, etc. And Jerusalem can be windy. And they would climb these tall ladders. But an interesting point is, there's no historical record known that any one of them ever fell and died. So all that time they lived at the temple, they would like this. there's no record that anyone got hurt. Baruch Hashem for that. Praise God for that. So those seven men lived to tell the story afterwards of those men that did that. So the light of these menorot, they believe that they were placed, and this is very interesting to me. The menorot, the main ones were placed in the women's court of the temple. The women's court, that's where it was placed. And there's an ancient tradition and custom within Judaism that it is through the woman that the light, the Messiah would come. Well, we know that's exactly what happened with Miriam, the mother of Yeshua. It was through her, through a woman, that Messiah came. The light of the world came through a woman. And another custom is at An Shabbat, who usually lights the candles. It's a woman who brought forth light, light and life. Hava was the mother. A-E was the first mother of the living. So uh, Cain and Abel came from her, etc. So the the... Historically, they believe the main light, the main menorot were placed in the woman's court. And it was said, and there are several historical records, it was said that the light glistening from these menorot, these 75-foot-high lights, golden lights, the lights that glistened from them was so powerful that it made Jerusalem bright as a sunny day. Now remember, though, if you, how many of you have been to Jerusalem? Go ahead and raise your hand if you've been to Jerusalem. Now it's a big, huge, modern city. But it was a little bit different back then. Actually, it was very different back then. And we know that because the Bible tells us that. In Tehillim, in, uh, in Psalm 122, verse 3, it says, Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. So those men are wrote, those lights, those candlesticks, the light that came from them, the tall candlesticks, lit that whole area of, of ancient Jerusalem. And when you looked at Jerusalem from a distance, and there are hills around Jerusalem, uh of the uh, Mount of Oz, Mount Scopus. Those others. When you looked at Jerusalem at that time, probably if you were a pilgrim coming in, and you were running a little bit late. A little bit late, you could follow the glow, you know, and go to where the glow was, as the glistening menorah shone all over that whole area. But it wasn't just the light ceremony didn't, didn't just involve lighting the menorah and brave men that climbed the ladder to go seven stories high to do it. It didn't just involve that. There was much more. It was an extravaganza, to use a modern term. It involved prayers. It involved singing. It involved shofar and trumpet soundings. It involved dancing. It involved special offerings given to the Lord that the people brought in who wanted to express thankgiving for the Lord's provision and His harvest. So they brought special offering. In fact, when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 6, it seems like either Sukkot or Shavuot is what Paul is thinking about. They remember Paul lived at the time when the temple's in operation. And if you look at the wording of 2 Corinthians 9, particularly these verses, verses 6 through 8, you see almost harvest kind of terminology used. He says, here's the point, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6, he who plants sparingly also, notice, harvest sparingly. Harvest was a big thing back then. It really is for us too. It's a big thing, although we have it in a different approach. Many of us, you know, we rely on others that are harvesting their crops so that we would have what to eat, as it said. Here's the point. He who plants sparingly also, harvest sparingly. Each should give according to what he has decided in his heart. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. And and notice this it says, For God loves a cheerful giver. And the season of Sukkot is the time of cheerfulness, joyfulness, simcha. That's what it is. Moreover, God has the power to provide you with every gracious gift. And then there's this term in abundance. So that always in every way you will have all you need yourselves and be able to provide abundantly for every good cause. And there's the, these harvest ideas that Shavuot and Sukkot connect with. Shavuot Pentecost was the harvest of the wheat. And Shavuot is the autumn harvest. when the, It's also called the feast of ingathering. So you notice words like planting and harvesting and cheerfulness and giving and abundance and provision that connect well to a holiday like Sukkot. But the visual at Sukkot in the temple time was, was that of a great light, this menorah you know, just towering over and others towering over the whole thing. And there's this eye of their little lights. So there words, the great light and the little light, the little light were the lapidim or the torches, And those who were celebrating the evening would have lapidim. They'd have torches. It's very interesting what was happening. And the record's about if you ever have a chance to investigate. They're fascinating. Frankly, we've probably never been to any type of ceremony like this. Like existed in the temple in the Beit HaMikdash in the first century at Sukkot. Now... This great light that came from the golden menorah, and then the, the people underneath it with their lapidim, their torches, moving and dancing and walking around, reminded the people of the creative power of God. Going all the way back to the to the creation, back in Genesis, when God made the greater sun and the lesser moon and stars. And as they looked at the greater menorah, they weren't worshiping the sun, but they were recognized, God is the creator of all things, and he was the one that blessed them to give them harvest so that they could return generously back to him and to the community. But more important, spiritually speaking, and this is where Yeshua's words at this time come in, we know that Yeshua is the light of the world. It's in him that we have life. And he also said to us that we too must be as lights in this world. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says this. This is the message which we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light, and there is no darkness in him. I love how the Complete Jewish Bible says it. There's no darkness in him, dash None. <laughs> verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him while we are walking in the darkness, we are lying and not living out the truth. And in verse 7 of First 1 First John chapter 1, it says, verse 7, but if we are walking in the line, just think of that imagery at Sukkot walking in the light as those people filtered into that, that area of the temple at the first century to celebrate Sukkot with that light there and they're walking under the light there and they had their little lapidim some of them there but if we are walking in light as he is in light then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of his son Yeshua Jesus the Messiah what does his blood do for us hallelujah for this purifies us from all sin, and further, we're told through faith in Yeshua, we're told to uphold the principles of passages like Philippians chapter two, verse fourteen. Complete Jewish Bible throws a nice Jewish term in here. It says, "Do everything without." Will you say that next word with me? Kavaching. Who knows what that word means? Who's complaining that you don't know about it? (laughs) Do everything without complaining, without kvetching or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure B'nai Elohim children of God, without defects in the midst of a twisted and perverted generation. And then it says this, and you can see this, connects with the very theme thematically with Sukkot and the great lights and the, the little lights among whom you shine like stars in the sky. How's your shining doing out in this world? Because we live in a very similar kind of world, don't we? A lot of grievous stuff happening. We don't want any part of that. Stay away from it. Be without a defect in the midst of as It says here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, be without defect in the midst of a twisted and perverted generation because you, as a believer, if you're a true follower of Yeshua, you are shining, you're shining like a star to them. And during the first century temple time of Sukkot, Just as the light ceremony, of course, there was a lot of pomp and circumstances to the lighting of the menorot, the the golden candlesticks, et cetera. There was a lot of pomp and circumstances, prayers, et cetera, that took place. But as the light ceremony proceeded during the evenings, there was something else done that we're more familiar with here. There were three blast intervals of the shofar And I've asked Dean. Dean is in the back. You might want to turn back there. I'm going to call out the three blasts for him. But this, what we do now, they did at the temple time. Tekiyah. Shevarim. Teruah. Thank you, Dean. That was happening at the Beit HaMikdash. And we know that it was more than one shofar going off. (laughs) So here you have this, just get this picture, please, here this morning. You have this tremendous light ceremony with these huge golden menorahs. And then in the evening, you have Levites running around with their lapidim, with their torches, their flaming torches. And then you have the blast of the shofars going off in three blast intervals like we just heard. Maybe even the very same notes we just heard. It became known that the light that was shining out of the temple courts, as people looked from a distance and they came in from the distance, especially the later ones, and they saw the light shining from the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, they likened to say, this is like the Shekhinah. It's like the very glow of God, the, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. And when they thought that and they saw the light, their expectation, because of the number of sacrifices, this unusual number of sacrifices that was done on Sukkot, which we spoke about on Tuesday, this unusual delineation of the sacrifices that just caught the, the eyes and the ears and the hearts of those that were interpreting the word of God at that time. They said, wow, the total throughout the days of Sukkot were 70. That's a lot. One sacrifice is hard work. <laughs> But 70, and that was just the major one, there were other sacrifices that went as the people brought their offerings. And they looked at it with the light and the blast of the shofar, and they thought the nations, the nations, the nations. That Sukkot wasn't just about Israel. Sukkot also connects with the nations. And when they saw the 70, which was the traditional view at that time of how many nations there were in the world, there was this view that there were 70 nations in the world. They thought this has to do with the nations in Israel, Israel and the nations, and surely they were correct about that. In Isaiah chapter 9, there are many scriptures that support this, but Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 in the English text says ha'am ha'rochim b'choshech ra'u or gadol the people who walked in darkness have seen in or gadol a great light think of how this taps into sukkot and what happened the temple those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them a light has shined you have multiplied the nation, and notice this next term, and increased its joy. This is still called, this holiday is still called Zaman Simchatenu, the time of our rejoicing. There's an old rabbinic saying, It is a great mitzvah to always be in joy and gladness. Mitzvah gedolah Liot b'simcha tamid is what it says. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. Reading back from Yishai Isaiah, chapter 9. They rejoice. Notice rejoice again. They rejoice before you according to what? The joy of the harvest. The joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. And I thought, wow, light, harvest, rejoicing. I mean, if we do word associations, one thing that would come up at first century with the temple in existence was, wow, those are the themes of Sukkot. Those are the themes of Sukkot. And Sukkot included, what? 70 sacrifices, which was deemed to be for the nations. So it was for Israel and the nations. And later in Zechariah chapter 14, we'll explore that later this evening, perhaps, by Isaiah Uh, Zechariah chapter 14, it talks about the nations coming up to celebrate what? Sukkot, tabernacles. And if they don't, (laughs) no rain. And then Egypt is singled out, especially those Egyptians. They don't. (laughs) But Messiah, by revealing himself as the light of the world, was also revealing himself as the fulfillment of of very much the messianic pillar of fire that we saw back in the wilderness wandering. That pillar of fire that guided the Israelites through the darkness of the wilderness, there he is. Has he guided your life? Has the Messiah, the light of the world, been a light to your life? I pray so. If not, then you need to receive him as your Lord and Savior and and submit your life to him because he is the light of the world. He is the one who gives, he is the way, the truth, and the life, as we say so commonly here. And Yeshua as the light, the Messiah as the light, as John chapter 1, verse 9, says it very clearly. It says, the true light, which gives light to Everyone. Entering the world. He's not only our Jewish Messiah, he's the Messiah of the nations. He's the king of the kings. He's the Lord of the Lord. He's the ruler of the universe. He's HaOlam, if you please. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 exhorts us that it makes clear that anyone who claims to be in this light, while hating his brother, is still in dark, in the dark. We just came through. The ten days of awe. We came through Yom Teruah, Rosh Hashanah. We came through this, this month beforehand of Elul, where we, we introspect, and we came to this time, and hopefully you availed yourself during this time here at Rosh Pina to get things right with God and with men as much as depends on you. As the new covenant says, be at peace with all as much as it depends on you. It takes two to tangle. It takes two to tango. It takes two to do things. 1 John 2 9, anyone who claims to be in this light while hating his brother, guess what? Is still in the dark. Verse 10, though, the person who keeps loving his brother, and you can almost put a little asterisk there, said, even if that brother irritates you, even that brother isn't doing how things like it. <laughs> you know, you can almost put an asterisk there. The person who keeps loving his brother, regardless, remains in the light, abides in the light, one translation says, and there is nothing in him that can make him trip, make him stumble, make him fall. If a person continues to love his brother regardless, and brother here means any human being, Yeshua said in John chapter 12, verse 46, he said, I have come as a light into the world." so that everyone who trusts in me might not remain in the dark. That's the testimony of many of us. That's my testimony. I once was in the dark, and when I received Yeshua as my personal Messiah, Lord and Savior, something happened. My life has not been the same, and it's been all good. It doesn't mean it hasn't been easy. It's been very hard at times. How many of you have gone through some hard times as a believer? Most of us have. Don't give up. Keep pressing into the Lord. Make sure that you dedicate yourself. Make sure you're faithful to him in the major areas of life. With your time, with your talents, with your finances and treasure. Make sure you're faithful to him because he knows that. Again, John 12, 46, Yeshua speaking says, I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who trusts in me might not remain in the dark. You know who everyone includes today? You, 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 You. and me, everyone. He does not want us to walk in darkness. He's the light of the world. Now, as we approach Sukkot this upcoming week, and Kevin gave announcements and expressed some of what we're doing, I hope you listen carefully to what Kevin said. I suggest that let us be thankful before the Lord. Do you have things in your life that you're thankful for? This is a time of rejoicing. It's not a time to be kvetching with your brother or sister or your husband or wife. It's a time of rejoicing. It's a time of, can I use the old colloquialism, counting your blessings. It's a time of that. It's a time of being thankful for provision. It's a time to be faithful with that provision. It's a time for thankful for life and to be faithful with that life he's given you. It's a time to be thankful for community, fellowship, and all these good things. But most of all, we should be thankful for Yeshua, Jesus our Messiah. He is the light of the world, and those that follow him do not walk in darkness. They walk in him who is the light of the world. And he gave everything for us. It's a whole nother topic, but I'll, I'll say this about that. I was reading in 2 Corinthians about what Yeshua left for us. That He left, to use the, the modern language, he left all the glory of heaven. Beyond our even imagination, the glories of that. He left it all. And he came and dwelt among us in the most humble of circumstances to a family that had little to nothing. Why would he do that? Why did he leave the glories of heaven? Why would he do that? He did it for you. He did it for you. He sacrificed himself. He gave, he gave it up for you. And because of his love for you today. Because he loved you so much... He came here, dwelt among us, and he was without sin, and he became for us the chata, the sin offering. He was without sin. Satan had nothing in him. He was without sin, and he did that for you and me because of his great love. And hallelujah, the grave could not hold him. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and here's a double hallelujah. He's coming back again. And he's going to set his feet on Harazetim as the, and the Mount of Olives, as the Scripture says. The Mount of Olives, as the Scripture says, is just going to go, and there he is. Are you ready for him? If he came now, would you be ready? Would you be ready to face the Messiah right now? Think about it. We need to be ready. In fact, he warned us in the various chapters, Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24, and in his parables, He says, be ready, be prepared, because you do not know the day of my coming. Could be any time. You say, well, I'm still a young person, doesn't matter to me. We've watched many young people pass away. You say, well, I'm an old person. I just have good genes. My DNA is great. All my family lives to 150 or whatever. Maybe you won't. Are you ready for the Messiah? Are you ready to meet him? Are you ready to meet the judge? I shall vet. Sukkot tells us to rejoice and be glad in the Lord, but it also makes sure that as we rejoice that we are focused on the Lord and his provision and his call on our life. And I want to leave you... Here this morning with one final statement that Yeshua made, and this statement I believe requires our personal daily attention and our ongoing active response. And that statement is found in Yochanan, John chapter twelve, verse thirty-six. It's an exhortation to all of us here today. John twelve thirty-six. While you have the light, while you have the Messiah, believe the light, that you may become sons and daughters, as it were. When it says sons, it means both, sons and daughters, bene. That you may become sons and daughters of light. That's our commission. We'll continue this evening with part two of this when we talk about the water libration, And to me, as grand as the light ceremony was, The water libation ceremony was beyond the pale. What happened, we'll try to express some of that. Take a little trip back, God willing, this evening, 6.30 on the sukkah, but 7 in here. Little trip back to the first century century and visit the temple again and see what they did then. Will you pray with me? Lord, how we praise you this day. Thank you for Sukkot Tabernacles, which is your idea. Thank you, Lord, for the Hazmanah, for the invitation you give to us to enjoy your Mo'adim, your appointed times. And Lord, as we consider, as we consider your great glory, your great love, your great mercy, Lord, I pray if there's anyone hearing these words that's never received you personally as his or her personal savior. Lord, I pray that you will remove the veil and allow your light to shine forth even as it did in ancient days at the temple of Jerusalem. In Orgadol, a great light. Lord, thank you for your provision. Thank you, Lord, for your love. And most of all, we thank you for sending your son, our Messiah, Yeshua. It's according to his name, his merit, that I make these requests. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, Excellent children's programs And Bible studies on Tuesday nights For more information Please visit our website www.roshpinah.org That's R-O-S-H P-I-N-A-H Dot O-R-G You can also reach us by phone At 405-842-1967 Or email us at Info at Thank you for spending time In the Word with us today Shabbat Shalom And blessings in Messiah Yeshua